May your hearts be warm and your runnings be cool. In honor of Run All Night, what's your favorite running scene? I'm very disappointed I didn't choose cool runnings. Uh, technically, it's parkour, but the opening scene of District P- B13 was the first time I ever saw parkour, so I still think of it as just cool running. You're so sheltered. You've never seen parkour before. In 2006? <laughs> you gotta get out in the world. I'm so privileged. I know. You didn't grow up around parkour. <laughs> but like, live it on the streets. To be David the Seven, I'm going to go with the end of Crocodile Dundee, the first one before the subway scene where she loves him and she knows about it and she's gonna go, he's going to go and walk about and it could last years and it's, it's like 80s music and damn. I'm Matt Patches and I'm going to pull a David and say Mission Impossible 3, the scene where Ethan Hunt is running around Shanghai home with some sort of brain implant bomb thing, running around and punching people with his elbows. Beautiful. And I'm... David Ehrlich, and I'm also going to pull a David and go with Mission Impossible 3, but a different scene where Tom Cruise is running across a bridge and that drone thing flies overhead and explodes the car and he gets the force of the blast, blows him over and he because he's so tiny, and he flies into the, the car. That's pretty great. He's a good runner. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 62 for Tuesday, March 10th, 2015. Still the year of our time, Lord Dr. Emmett Brown. We have no new reviews this week, which means you guys should write us some more. Uh, We will... After you get through the end of this episode, we will sing either more or less, depending on what you tell us in our reviews. It's all up to you. What do you mean, if they get through it? Come on. I will, well, I'm not trying to, I'm trying not to spoil anything. When? When? When you get to the end of our episode, tell us how you like our singing, and then you can uh, decide what happens in the Perfect. next one. For our first tip of today, we're going to this. This will sound. Uh, this is really all uh, fan service for our longtime listeners. I think this segment <laughs> will be uh, very much in the in the personal. <laughs> and David loves role. fan service in oh. movies, so yeah, yeah really, my favorite thing. He's the one uh, to deliver fan service to the podcast. Uh, and uh, uh, in, in this is sort of going to be in the spirit of probably some of our quarter quells, but. Uh, this weekend, this past weekend, my girlfriend and I went to uh, Montauk in the dead of winter, or really towards the end of winter, the like the the beginning of the resurrection of spring or whatever. Um, for her and Christ, I guess, because that's what Easter is. So. Right, naturally, I'm go. a big big. Uh, I, David's I'm, a big I'm Christ fan. Jesus' schedule, really. So <laughs> uh, it's time to resurrect uh, our, our romance in Montauk Hall. Well, she uh, she has been wanting to go to Montauk in winter, uh, inspired you know by Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind for for years and years and years. And f- after years of promising that we were going to do it, I finally went ahead and booked an Airbnb, uh, and we went. And it snowed uh, intensely on Thursday, and which was perfect because we got there late Friday night and 
Montauk in uh, the first weekend of March is a ghost town. I think a lot of these places in the eastern seaboard that are beach towns and summer towns uh, tend to clear out. But I didn't really understand what that meant until I got there, which it's it's really almost post-apocalyptic. Um, it's it's really just barren of people. Uh, and, and Montauk's small to begin with. You get there off the LIRR, the train station, uh, which is the train station for the movie. Fans of that film will notice, although the restaurant at which they eat uh, is closed. It is now a, uh, like, a, it's called like a Cuban joint. It's called, like, Havana something. Anyway, um, and uh, there are guys there waiting by the non-train station. It's just, like, the tracks just stop in the middle of a field. And there are guys there who are cab drivers take you where you want to go. Anyway, we did that, and we went out on Saturday, and we had a... Uh, a really lovely walk on the beach, which was half covered in snow and half in sand and was blisteringly cold. <laughs> we were the only people stupid enough to do this, which meant that we were alone for miles in either direction. Which was I hope really you were playing John Bryan's soundtrack on your iPhone. Oh, God. I think so at one point, the whole way. <laughs> I think at one point I loudly sang that Beck song that they sang at the end, Into the Wind. Um, oh, my God. This it's, sounds it's, sad. I mean, it, it, it's our kind of happiness, I think. <laughs> so, um, and I think that movie ends on a resilient note, a realist one at least, which I can appreciate. But uh, it was uh, it was beautiful. The beach they go to in that movie is actually in East Hampton, which is about 30 minutes away from Montauk. Um, but this beach with the cliffs and everything was, was even more dramatic, I'd say. And uh, it's rare as a New Yorker to be have that much space to yourself where you can be that loud or idiotic or whatever. I mean, I'm both those things at all times anyway. Uh, but it's, it's, I hadn't been that alone uh, aside from my girlfriend in a, in a very, very long time. And all these amazing summer houses that are completely empty. Uh, these very wealthy people who are gone and you could just run around on their private property and enjoy their, ridiculous Bond villain-like staircases up these cliffs. Although uh, I would never have the balls to break into one of them and drink wine like they do in Eternal Sunshine. Yeah, I, that, we did not no. go quite... It's pretty intense. We were not exactly cosplaying uh, the Eternal Sunshine experience. <laughs> but just, close. We happened to enjoy the location, and uh, it was the kind of getaway very accessible for New Yorkers that I think appealed to both of us, and we had a really nice time. But uh, early in the afternoon, I got a email from my family saying that my father was in the hospital um, and that he'd been nauseated for a few days uh, but wasn't in any pain and they'd gone to the hospital and they were running some tests and uh, I was moderately alarmed I guess but I didn't really think too much of it Um, and we went and had like a little siesta and we went to dinner at this restaurant called Harvest which was there are like 10 places to eat in Montauk that are open this time of year and that was one of them. And we thought we'd stroll in and it was just going to be completely empty like everything else was. And it was absolutely packed. And they only had uh, one place for us to sit that wasn't going to be an hour-long wait, which was at what they call the Cappuccino Bar uh, in the corner, which is – I think it's like a regular bar, but they call it the Cappuccino Bar. Not necessarily because they serve cappuccinos, which I'm not sure they do, but just because it's a fancy way of saying like you will have no fucking personal space whatsoever. <laughs> um, and, and so we sat there, but literally as we were sitting down – this crowded bar, I got a uh, text from my family that they had uh, found something on my dad's MRI and that it was uh, they found what appeared to be a tumor on his brain. Uh, and so I was not 
I was a little dazed. Um, and yeah, they were really close quarters at this bar. And we were sandwiched between these two couples who uh, were both very friendly and were giving us recommendations as to what we should order and had been going there for a long time. And I was I I would say that I'm not the best at small talk to begin with. I usually walk around with giant headphones on, so uh, I can avoid talking to people in New York. Um, and uh, I was not really in the mood. I, and I was actually I, I remember being self conscious that I was being rude that these were uh, people in this town that obviously everyone sort of knows each other or is visually familiar with each other at this restaurant, and that I was clearly an interloper. Uh, and was being ruder than I meant to be, and just sort of curt and saying thank you and just keeping my head down. Uh, the couple to our left was was very enthusiastic about the the salad, the shrimp salad. And, uh, I think we ignored. I believe it's their, calamari uh, salad. Yeah, I calamari think. salad. But we. Uh, I feel we, like you're spoiling the end of the story. We we, we decided uh, not to order that. But uh, I was really really down in the dumps, and they started talking to me, um, or I I think I just feeling rude made an effort to be a little bit less antisocial because uh, we they really were sort of sitting right on top of us. And I, I said, um, no fault of their own. There's just the setup that was there. Uh, and they started talking about Park City. I don't know how that came up. Uh, we were talking about how um, they'd just been there or the wife had just been there. And I said, oh, I was just there as well. And uh, the, the woman said, you know, were you there for Sundance? And I said, yes. And at which point her husband sticks out his hand and looks at me and goes, I'm Rod Patch. He goes, are you David Ehrlich? And I was like, yes. And he's like, Rod Patches. And it, I actually, <laughs> like, my mind. Wait, before you even head. said, like, I'm a film critic, like, he anything? Goes, I, the words were about to come out of my mouth that I'm a film critic. But he literally, it was the smoothest oh move God. I've ever seen. Like, he had been planning it. But he, I was, oh wait, was waiting for the most surgically, dramatically precise moment of the strike. But, um... <laughs> We had really only been talking for a minute or so, and 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 Matt's mother had just said, uh, you know, uh, she was at Sundance, and I was like, I was there, as, I was at Sundance, and uh, and he was like, Are you David Ehrlich? And I was like, Yes, and it's Rod Patch. <laughs> yeah. like right into it, and it, it was uh, like, Oh, you recognize me from my film criticism from Sundance? I see. I didn't even have time for my ego to be like, really? Here in the in literally the end, as they call Montauk, at the end of the Eastern Seaboard. Uh, I my fame has spread so far. No, I uh, I didn't even have time to process this before, uh, and I I'm still sort of wrapping my head around the cosmic coincidence of it all. But uh, it was as longtime listeners of the show will know. Rod Patches was one of our earliest supporters. Is, Matt Patch's father. He was on an episode of the show. That's the true. He was. Well. Yes. Um, and unlike my father, uh, or my mother for that matter, uh, who are both, I don't think either of them know what a podcast is. And I've told them repeatedly, offhandedly, that I'm on one and it just does not seem to register. But Ron <laughs> Patches has listened to many episodes, if not all of them. And, uh, uh, and it was really, um, I felt bad sort of coming right out and, and just sort of being like letting them know what was on my mind, given that we had just met. Uh, oh, they're but, family. But uh, no, it was it was really this cosmically comforting thing in a way, because he is in his, you know, someone that we've talked about on the show, but I'd never met before, obviously. Uh, something of a father figure and a very jolly one at that. Uh, and it was, uh, it, it, you know, um, it was very comforting in its own way. We had a really lovely time and they bought us a nice dessert and were kind enough to drive us back to the Airbnb where we were staying and sparing us another ride in the pink tuna taxi 
that patrols Montauk. <laughs> uh, and, and my girlfriend had hurt her leg, and so we were debating shelling out for a cab anyway. And anyway, it was all very, very nice. Patch's parents are lovely people. And uh, it was, it was, it just, it was so strange. They don't even live in Montauk. They live in Philadelphia, really, and have a house in East Hampton. Uh, and this happens to be like their favorite restaurant, which apparently, Matt, you can speak up and confirm for yourself. Uh, yeah. I, I have been there, and it is delicious. But that we had chosen to go there on our one night in Montauk, because we ended up having to leave at 7.30 the next morning to go to the hospital. Um, and uh, and that we had been sat at this place rather than waiting at the bar as we had originally planned to, and that they had been the people sitting next to us. It was all... And that we had gotten to talking and he had recognized my voice and I guess it put two and two together pretty quickly. Oh uh, it was all pretty mind-blowing to me. Maybe, I don't know if that'll translate to anybody listening. But This doesn't me, really my sound mind like, is blown. like it's, it's, your, your weekend started as a Michelle Gondry film, but it seems to have ended as a, maybe a White's Brothers film or is it a Linklater <laughs> film? <laughs> or they mentioned podcasting, so is it really a Kevin Smith joint? Or? Oh, oh, God. God. Yeah. Uh, don't insult this beautiful experience. <laughs> when is Rod Patches coming for Katie Rich? I know, because I haven't met Rod come for me in Denver already. Because Rod Patches had just had dinner with Dave in Colorado. That is so <laughs> crazy. Um, we should auction uh, off a dinner with Rod Patches. You should. It would, it would be worth a it, fantastic let me tell you. fundraiser. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and so we ended up spending Sunday in, in three different hospitals. Um, and uh, or my dad is having, for anyone out there who gives a shit, uh, we're, it's, all, it's all still processing, and I don't know, but it, it, it was having its biopsy on Wednesday morning, and we'll see what happens, but... Uh, uh, it hasn't really sunk in, but I know that in this surreal time for me, really when it was just first happening, it was uh, uh, a very memorable and bizarre coincidence. <laughs> and I am grateful to both of Matt's parents for being there. Humans, they're Thank still kind of nice. Thank you, Patches right, family. Patches. When they're not making superhero movies, humans can be decent. enough to just have one uh, Ghostbusters reboot. He wants to expand the Ghostbusters universe, which is why Sony, in its infinite wisdom, has broken the news. Well, Deadline broke the news, but Ivan Reitman talked to them, so it doesn't seem like a leak so much as an actual planned launch, that they are going to have an additional Ghostbusters movie developed in addition to the female Ghostbusters. (laughs) Uh, Channing Tatum may or may not be involved. He's at least on board as a producer. It's Ivan Reitman and Dan Aykroyd who are uh, establishing, is it Ghost Corps? Is that what it's called yes. within Sony? But that's all, yes. wait, that's like the name of their company that is going to be Command, apparently. You now need entire companies in Command of Expanded Universe. I thought for a second that was the plot of the movie, and it was like about people trying to license the ghost. I got really confused. Oh, that would be fun. Yeah, the, the, there should be another <sighs> be movie a... in the Expanded Universe that has a meta edge. About, about trying to make like Kristen Wiig action figures. Yeah, it should be Tristan um, Shandy. Except about mega franchises, as they exactly, it's going to happen someday. Scream Four, yeah, that too. Um, so the immediate outrage on the internet to this was uh, they're taking away female Ghostbusters. It's going back to the boys because girls can't have anything. Which even I can, even I in my also initial outrage can tell is not what's happening. They're just just like Sony did with Sinister Six while they were still making Spider-Man movies, saying, "Oh, we've got the spinoff plan, even if you don't necessarily." 
like the movie we've made yet, or in this case, have seen it. But to me, the dumbness of the timing really does seem to be like kind of kicking the legs out from under the female Ghostbusters. And that's what made me so mad about it. Like to announce that, you know, just in case you're not interested in female Ghostbusters, there's going to be another one on the way. So, you know, go do whatever you want to, MRAs. They were planning um, this announcement for International Women's Day on Sunday. Exactly. And they realized the optics were her. Yeah. Um, but Dave, you kind of suggested the idea that they could marvelize Ghostbusters back when they first started talking about a reboot. And this does seem to me like the logical extension of everyone wants a, a universe for their one thing that's successful. Is that all this is or is there something dumb and sinister and sexist about this? Well, uh, I'm not sure if there's anything sexist about it, uh, but I definitely think that this is like Dan Aykroyd exploiting his further enthusiasm for Ghostbusters, like he continuously does, but he got a foothold last fall with somebody uh, with this idea. I can't figure out who's listening to him over there. Well, he gave an interview to The Hollywood Reporter where he mentioned basically like it's up to Sony, like is Ghostbusters like your Avengers? Like is it, what is it worth to you? It's like what's X-Men worth to Fox? Like I think it's exactly what he said. So it's definitely he was pressing that idea and the deadline report seems to sort of hold out that that's the same sort of time period that things were sort of being fleshed out. But then they bargained away their biggest franchise, which was Spider-Man, to this uh, possible character sharing deal where they might not have complete control over it. And so they need to boot a franchise really fast because Sony's in the same trouble it was bef- before Wait, when Amy Pascal was president. reboot or boot a franchise? Boot, boot a, a franchise. franchise. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, they're apparently not going to deal with the original characters uh, of Ghostbusters whatsoever in any of these. And then Badass Digest is saying there's going to be at least a prequel movie, too, (laughs) and then a movie where these two teams meet Avengers style. Well, I think that article specifies that this movie that Chris Pratt and Channing Tatum could be in is not necessarily a guy-centric movie. So you That's don't have true. to be too offended by that, Katie. It's, it may not, not be sexist. Oh, except that all the ghosts in the movie, all the movies are going to be men, because only men become ghosts. I'm sorry. Yeah, obviously. Only men are allowed to... Uh, the librarian was a woman. No, she's a well, man. Well, no, we're talking, about the, we're talking about the new world. Yeah, this is the new, um, yeah. all-male Ghostbusters things. Oh, it's oh God, not. Yeah. It's not the fact that it would be an all male Ghostbusters that I th- that I think is sexist. It's the idea that they can't let the women one stand on its own at all. As like this is the definitive future of Ghostbusters, they have to go ahead and announce it. And I realize they did basically the same thing for Spider Man, and that doesn't make it sexist. But the perceived lack of faith in a female led franchise is well, what, the f- the intentionally or that, not, reads as sexist. To the me. flip side of that is that they have so much faith in that movie that they need you to anticipate the rest of it, and it incentivizes people to see that first movie. I mean, do you think that was what the Sinister Six meant? Yeah, exactly. So you have to see this movie. Aside from all my other thoughts about how (laughs) asinine all this is, uh, am I the only one who thinks that the all-female Ghostbusters is a guaranteed hit? Like I, I, oh, it's going to be huge! As soon as you slap yeah. from the people who brought you Ghostbusters, or for, yeah, for the people who brought you Ghostbusters, <laughs> but bridesmaids. I mean, bridesmaids is a huge stamp of approval. It's going to be a big deal. Well, I mean, this also wasn't the way this was all supposed to go down. Like, the all-female Ghostbusters just kind of got out there by the nature of it's a good idea. Like, I'm sure they wanted to announce all these things at once. But then, like, you get hacked a little bit, you get leaked a little bit, <laughs> and people were really into that hacker leak, and then that's, that's you know, true. I didn't, what happens. I didn't actually think about that part of it. That's, that that would have read a little bit better. What's really because amusing. then it would have been we're leading with the woman team. Yeah. I, I find it really amusing that, like... Populate. 
I mean, I, I like all these people involved. And Channing Tatum and Chris Pat, Pratt busting ghosts sounds fine. Yes, It's just absolutely. funny that, like, everyone wants a shared universe. And, the, you know, there's so many shared universes examples. Do they? Well, yeah. the, the, there's only Universal Marvel. Is only Marvel is. Oh, it. sorry. You, I thought you meant audiences, not just. No, oh, I'm not yeah, talking about. No. I'm just saying Studios. everyone wants one, but like, what is the proof that this is a good idea? Only Fast Marvel. Fast and Furious and no, Marvel. Fast, Fast and Furious. There's no crossover yes. movies. Tokyo Drift. What is that? What are you talking about? That's about a completely different character that then happened to be. If you haven't even followed your Fast and Furious mythology. Yeah, but it's not like current uh, sequels. I mean, that it's are accidental. It's basically like a. Yeah, that's true. But I think they're getting there. Isn't that part of the plan? Really? It, it they're going to like drive is, off in different directions at the end of this next movie? No, I Maybe. think what Katie's trying to say is that they're they're folding the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift story back into the main chronology, oh, obviously, right. as we saw at the end of... Sure, Furious. sure. That's but uh, I don't know. I, it, you know, without the planning, it doesn't really feel as much like that to me. I mean, I guess you're right, though. This is essentially what Fast and the Furious... Do um, Fast and the Furious kind of walked into it? You know, they went ahead and made it happen for themselves. <laughs> Excuse me, for drove. But no, you're right. I mean, Marvel is the one example of what's made it work. But it's made it's made so much money that why wouldn't everyone try to do the same thing, even on something like Ghostbusters, where it makes no sense? They're just they're all going to be the exact same. I guess that's the problem with Ghostbusters. It feels a little too small <laughs> for expansion in the universe. Well, we don't know what it looks like yet. I guess that's true. I just picture the containment unit being accidentally opened and all the movies flying out of it. I believe it's magic. It's almost like Pandora's Box, an original female hero who uh, nobody gives any credit for inventing any of this. Are you pitching a Pandora movie right now? (laughs) I'm sure someone is for actual money somewhere in the world right now. It's a gritty reboot of Pandora. (laughs) Was Pandora, did she own her box? I thought somebody else opened Pandora's Box. Who the fuck yeah, was Pandora? Pandora wouldn't open her own box. Right, exactly. So we, first we need an origin story of Pandora. Mm-hmm. So that Actually, no, no, no. You start with the Pandora box movie about a guy opening Pandora's box. Then sequel is actually going to be a prequel where Pandora creates the box. And then the third one jumps ahead in time for a new gang to find the Pandora's box. And uh, then okay. we'll reboot it. This and segment has got to be modern Before spin. any of this, you have to get the rights to the name Pandora back from James Cameron. Wait, does he own it, or does Pandora I'm Music sh- Service own it? <laughs> we'll actually call it uh, Fandora's Box with an H. Aren't you guys just talking about Hellraiser now? Crap. <laughs> Crap. That can Crap also- it all. Let's reboot that, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. What had happened was, I was out, so I talked about times with my grandson. When I didn't know where 400 police vehicles came walking. They went busting up in that weird old white dude's house. For segment three tonight, we are going to be talking about uh, a remarkably lovely new show uh, called The Unbreakable, not just The, sorry, it's cleaner this way, Unbreakable. Kimmy Schmidt, which was unbreakable. Right, we can all we can all get it out of our systems. There's no such thing as possible. I can. I don't know any of the other words Linger because it's all auto tuned. They're alive, damn it! Oh yeah, but uh, this show for for what as I just learned doing my research for this segment uh, on Wikipedia was originally called Tooken. So yeah. it's a good thing that they changed that. I'm going to go yeah. ahead and say I don't think it's like one of those. It's one of those things where, or I don't think it is one of those things where. Eventually, if something's good enough, the name begins to seem classy or uh, appropriate, like Radiohead, which I, I have long maintained, uh, if not for the music, 
and legacy of the band itself would be remembered as the god awful band name that it is. Um, but you know, it. Uh, <laughs> but that's just the thing. That's, that's just the thing. Anyway, I don't think what I'm saying is that I don't think even if Tooken were the same show uh, that I ever would have been really thrilled about the name Tooken. But Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is Netflix's new show. It Spinoff is, of Unbreakable. Yes. <laughs> right. And about, and about Schmidt. Schmidt. Yeah. Damn it. Damn it. Um, <laughs> and starring uh, Kimmy from Full House. No. Exactly. <laughs> um, and it is. Is it their first? Is it Netflix's first half hour? Uh, Arrested Development. Arrested Development. Oh, yeah, yes. I guess. No, yes, Arrested yes, Development yes, yes. would count, um, I suppose. And like Arrested Development, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt was uh, engineered for NBC. Well, not Arrested Development, it was for NBC, but it was for network television. Uh, and it wound up on Netflix because network television is a graveyard for good ideas. And this uh, this was far too good for that. And it is, if you have not seen it already, uh, the story of a woman named Kimmy Schmidt, who's played by the delightful Ellie Kemper, who is so permanently smiling that it must be uh, <laughs> etching lines into her face. This is my, my girlfriend's one criticism of the show thus far. That she's, that she's probably, always smiling. She doesn't like all the smiling. <laughs> no, I think she, she doesn't. It's not that she doesn't like the smiling. She's uh, concerned for what it's going to do to Ellie Kemper's face. Um, and uh, I think concerns are relatable given that it's about a 29-year-old, which all falls right into our wheelhouse, who uh, has been uh, – was abducted and lived in a bunker – uh, for 10 years with a crazy cult leader who told his the four women that he had kidnapped to live with him that the world had ended and the series begins they're getting out and readjusting to a world that is no longer in the 90s so she was in, in the bunker for longer than that 15 years 15 years yeah and um She's trying to make it in New York City. And the show, which was created by Tina Fey and Robert Carlock, is uh, unmistakably related to 30 Rock. And as someone who was really just finding his way into 30 Rock and appreciating that show, this couldn't have come along at a better time. Uh, the humor is very similar. But what's more, the, the, the greater link, I'd say, and part of why I love this show so much beyond the fact that it's hilarious um, and that the characters are... So winning is that I think it is a really honest uh, portrait of the abuses that New Yorkers, and particular, particularly uh, women in New York, have to endure in order to survive here. Um, not that they necessarily deserve to or should, but you know the the, the way it is and how uh, obviously in an amplified cartoonish way, as we see in the show, they resort to surviving these things and getting around them. Uh, and I think class and privilege are, are more integral to this than they were in 30 Rock. I think the show is a little bit more focused in these 13 episode seasons than, that are all filmed at once than 30 Rock was ever allowed to be and more substantial in its own way as a result, uh, at least so far as I can tell from the 10 episodes that I've seen for season so far. But I happen to think that this is brilliant. It came along at a perfect time for me and I mainlined it this weekend uh, and was very happy doing so. I'm looking forward to watching the last three episodes. And goddamn, that Ellie Kemper is uh, is just charmer. Charming. This show uh, is David, so it, much it, better than Thirty Rock. Wait, hang on. Throw it out there. Mm. Wait, you gave up on Thirty Rock? What after three seasons? Yeah. I mean, Thirty Rock. <laughs> Thirty Rock was inconsistent. It had time to kind of go up and down. But I don't know that I. I mean, I really like Kimmy Schmidt too. But Thirty Rock had 
plenty of episodes. It's but you also worship this. Thirty Rock. I mean, yeah, I love Thirty Rock, but I think have I know an it's actual shrine in your. I know it's I've humor it. really well, and I think <laughs> you I mean, sacrificed the, goats to keep Thirty Rock on the air. Exactly, Kenneth Parcell is my master now. Oh, um, I, did, I, I don't know. Well, I think Kenneth Thirty Rock Parcell held up is, to this. Who was it? Was it you or was it somebody else who was saying that? This is essentially like 30 Rock if Kenneth were the lead. And I while I understand that, but... where they're coming from because it's sort of a small town bumpkin who comes to the big city and is clueless as to what's happening in the world. Kenneth was always my least favorite character on 30 Rock. And Kimmy is, uh, along with Jane Krakowski, who I think is infinitely funnier here than she's in 30 yes. Rock. Um, not that I'm saying this is a better show necessarily, but her character is much funnier here than she's in 30 Rock, uh, are the best parts of this show. And so I'm not sure if I see that. I just took up for Titus Burgess as the best part of the show, but uh, I also don't think Kimmy is just Kenneth in the lead of a show no because way. she's more interesting. She has kind of the entire thrust of the show is about her solving problems while not giving up on her essential like sunniness and willingness to believe in the best in people, which is sounds super corny, but makes it really interesting because she's able to accomplish things, which Kenneth didn't really have the ability to do. Um, David, I realized watching it tonight that this is basically just 13 going on 30, the TV show. And I yeah, figured no, out, I, I was like, oh, that's but, why David loves it so uh, much. It's not. So that's what I like about it. Um, only the first maybe one or two or three episodes feel like 13 going on 30 or something like blast from the past, which is more literal. If you're eventually the light up shoes that she wears dressing like a 15 year old are sort of, uh, they're still there, but they're less the main thrust of what's Yeah, happening. it's not just her about, like, how does this work, or what is this? She, no, of she course not. She slips back into... She she was old enough when she went into the bunker, I guess, to or exposed to enough while in the bunker to know what, like, dating is, and drinking alcohol, and, like, going out, or, like, wanting to learn, and wanting to do all these... Live life. Live life in New York City, and she's living Taylor Swift's New York City, you know? Uh, she, this is <laughs> exactly Taylor um, This is Taylor Swift's New York. <laughs> yeah, except it's not, and that's what's funny about it. Uh, it's It's not just being bewildered because you've been in the bunker for so long. And then the bunker comes back to haunt her. And I think that's what's great about the show. It's her wrestling with where she was and where she is now and who she was and who she's become. As David said, there's just so much more going on in this show in terms of its emotional storylines, which you might not think of with something as like crazed. And, and I mean, this show is like airplane. The jokes Although are on now, top of jokes now are on top of jokes. Thinking, now you have me thinking that Taylor Swift could single-handedly gentrify a neighborhood one so, yeah. like a one person gentrification <laughs> she has the mightiest she, Carol touch. Kane would uh, hit her with a baseball <laughs> exactly. bat full of nails before she she would that. be moving dolphins into that neighborhood <laughs> so fast and um, I, I can I can the economics are interesting anyway um yes sorry go on have you guys uh, so Katie and Matt uh, Dave you've seen a couple episodes have Katie and Matt, have you two seen the whole first season? I have. No, I just well, I I just saw the episode with her birthday party, which wasn't made me think of thirteen going thirteen going on thirty more than anything. Mm. To stick up for my earlier point, but the yeah, birthday I party episode is exceptional. It is good, and I think Patches was really being insulting to the emotional depth of thirteen going on thirty earlier. So well, I don't that mind back, doing that at all. Although I was <laughs> no. just on the Wikipedia page while we're recording this, read uh, to my chagrin. I wish I would had not seen this, but who plays uh, the Reverend Richard Wayne. Wait, you're Gary not. You Wayne. have not finished it. No. You have not, oh, do not say uh, this on the air. So do, not, I will not, do not let the reveal. I, was, <laughs> I, I can tell that I will be. Oh my uh, god, it's so I will perfect. Be when it happens. Well, that's that's the great um, thing. Like this first thirteen episodes has a real arc to it, and it's not Kimmy just bumbling around and you know standalone episodes. There's a serialized aspect to the show, which I think is really fun, that it can be so jokey and so crazy and so imaginative. You know, it has those kind of 
I mean, does, I think 30 Rock kind of imploded itself for me because it became too fantastical. It didn't really care about its characters anymore. And I, what I like about Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is that it finds a way to invest in the storylines of all these people who are all over the map. Plus, they can have random jokes about, like, holding a giant shark or, you know, in the middle of a New York street or just zaniness that feels... It's it's like a different era, especially with the music. Uh, Tina Fey's husband. What, oh, my God, what is his name? Jeff Richmond. Jeff Richmond does the music, and I, he kills it. I mean, the music in the show is incredible, and it, and it elevates everything so much for me that this... It just feels like a different era. It's so timeless. And um, the guest and stars, who I will not identify... The guest are, stars are uh, really out of control. All, that was one of 30 Rock's high points and uh, already in the first 10 episodes of this show that I've seen they have lived up to that high standard but just to unpack our love fest for the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt a little bit further uh, this is for me the first thing that Netflix has done with their original programming that I have enjoyed I think House of Cards is just I, I it's how how can you do that to yourselves as humans they've watched House I, I just, of Cards what a what a terrible <laughs> terrible did. program Turn Dave on the bus why don't you yeah anyway right right at the beginning of the House of Cards discussion <laughs> uh, but so so that's awful awful and I think that um, <laughs> Orange is the New Black is decent uh, I could not be bothered to watch the second season so my opinion is really wow the second season so was a lot better because it was less about old what's her name. The yeah, main character. Who's yeah. <laughs> a name I can't remember, and everyone else Piper. is so much better. Oh, Piper, yeah. Yeah, I just, I really uh, was, I I was really just not enjoying that show uh, very much in the first season. Um, I was never much on the Arrested Development bandwagon. I am saying nothing that is going to endear me to anybody listening to the show. New Arrested but, Development was terrible. It's undebatable. No, right. so I, I liked it. I, I also liked it. Clearly undebatable. Uh, I was <laughs> I was waiting for Netflix to debut something that I could really get behind, and and here we have this. But it comes hot on the heels of the announcement that uh, they paid, I believe, like twelve million dollars to get the rights to carry Joji Fukunaga's new film, Beasts of No Nation, with Idris Elba, which will be coming out later this year, and which they're going to release theatrically. Um, before premiering on Netflix, I had to imagine, or I believe that's the plan. And I yes. know I've been thinking of Netflix as a distributor ever since the opening night of Sundance this year when we saw the Nina Simone documentary, which opens with a giant Netflix title card, which is uh, bizarre. It's bizarre to see that as the first image you see at a major film festival. Um, and knowing that its ultimate destination is going to be on Netflix, I don't know what the theatrical plan is for that movie. Uh, not that movie really did a lot for me. It's perfect Netflix viewing. Um, but it, it's seeming, it was always inevitable and not always, but it, it's, it's been seeming inevitable for a while that Netflix was going to become a major player in the, uh, shaping really not just television, but the entire, uh, you know, film and, and television sphere and sooner than I might've thought. And now that they're sort of coming out with guns blazing with the uh, Carrie Jody Fukunaga, movie uh i i don't know i just wanted to open up the conversations to what their role in this could be how they're going to go about shaping their identity how much power it is that they really have if it's as much as we all think um and if people are going to be able to look at this especially because it's going to be released right in the heat of the oscar conversation when or when that's really beginning in october when everyone is beginning to look at every movie purely for its uh 
merits as an Oscar contender, and we have to deal with the eligibility of this movie. I'm not sure what it's going to be. It, uh, it'll it play. I mean, all you have first. to all you have to do is play in a theater for a week when you can four wall something and get it. Okay, so, which actually works well, to their advantage is, because as quick as soon as it gets on Netflix, it becomes something right. that everyone screeners can watch won't be a problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but will you know? I, I I think that is maybe not the final frontier, but it is another frontier of getting a movie that uh, is distributed in that way in the Oscar conversation, the awards conversation. I don't know if it's this is that kind of movie, but I do know that it is going those questions are going to be asked of it simply because of its pedigree and when it's being released. Um, um so I don't know. I want to hear Dave on this conversation first just cuz you weren't able to talk about Kimmy Schmidt and also you think about the way the, the ways that people see movies a lot. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it makes me definitely curious about what the numbers all these original series are doing, if that they're able to throw around so much money on what seems like an expansive plan when they could just do what they were doing before and still gaining users, which is just like throw up a whole bunch of weed documentaries. <laughs> but it's like, um, I guess there was a period of time in between the two things that I just mentioned that they were sort of losing licenses because people were, you know, realizing at the expiration of the license what their movie lines were worth and sort of playing it and some things ended up in different places and now you sort of, people have everybody gotten, everybody has gotten used to using Netflix by a rotating uh, availability and so it's interesting to see this interesting programming that's going to be anchored here, but it's only really spreading from like user to user through word of mouth or like other people's sharing of accounts. It's not like something that's being constantly hyped by like box office numbers or anything that's business related or quantifiable like we're used to. So in that sense, as like they could be putting out flops and as long as people are talking about it they don't have to be spending this much money it's nice that they are i suppose because it usually money follows something that someone thinks is quality but if not that's going to wreak havoc on the entire investment system of creating your own original content and then you're stuck in a system where you have to keep buying other people's content and it's hard to be profitable that way i wonder i i i i, I Netflix is starting to exhaust me a little bit. They have so many shows, and they're putting them out so aggressively now. Um, you know, two weeks ago was House of Cards, and last weekend was Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and at the end of the month, Bloodline comes out, this Kyle Chandler family drama. Um, and then not too long after that, you know, April 10th is Daredevil, and in May they have another show with the Jane Fonda show. Um, and they June just is so Orange is New Black. Much and uh, by by doing the complete rollout every time, it just it makes my head spin. Not just as someone who covers it or something like that, it, it, just as someone who wants to, you know, eat it all up without spoilers, whatever that is, or or, or you know, wants to be part of the conversation. We were all talking about Kimmy Schmidt this weekend because we all just happened to have the time to be able to watch it. But can I yeah. like do that for every show? No. Uh, well, yeah, that's it's certainly why I haven't watched House of Cards because I missed the moment and I didn't feel compelled to go back to it, which is a little disappointing because, I mean, I at least would want to watch it. And I know I could have in the last year watched the last two seasons, but there's just so much other stuff coming out. And if it was kind of you, strewn about, I would maybe would have done it. Do you it. think it's intentionally a criticism diffusion bomb? Yeah, well, I don't know because that seems like a double-edged sword. You may dodge criticism but then you dodge but do you dodge attention yeah i mean yeah because it's become kind of like you know this weekend it was like kimmy schmidt was the avengers and that was the thing everyone was talking about and you had to watch it to be part of the conversation and it was great but like 
you can't do that every weekend. Like you can't commit 13 hours as opposed to two and a half hours. And now it's not just Netflix, you know, with Amazon kind of getting in on the same, you know, atomic bomb drop of shows. I've been really into their procedural show with Titus Welliver Bosch based on the Bosch books. Um, and it's been really... I thought that was just an elaborate joke that you were playing on Twitter when you were no, talking to people about it. No, I was serious. Like you were, you were all so like did other people when I was asking. I'm like, the idea that someone would be into Bosch. <laughs> I, well, I was asking them how they could be into Bosch, and everyone was like, are you joking? Are you pulling my chain? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm legitimately interested if I should watch Bosch. And it's it's a great show. Like I, I love Titus Welliver in this role. It's kind of flipping the whole noir thing on its head and taking you know that LA confidential and moving it into the 21st century and and playing on what police should do and what sh- they shouldn't do it's very much part of the you know it's reflecting on Ferguson they shot it around uh, the, during that dur- uh, in the wake of the shooting and now that all the indictments have and have not happened i guess um, this Bosch is able to confront all that it's about police morality and Tice Welliver's so good in the show and there's so much to say but you know, it came out a few weeks ago, and the, its time is over. You know, I, I had a wonderful chat with Titus Welliver and going into my inside baseball here a little bit, but I'm like, oh, I want to I talk about the show. I want to write about the show, but I don't know. Its cultural moment is over in, in, a, in a flash, was he like, if it even happened. like, you watched Bosch? Yeah. <laughs> what is Bosch? <laughs> You're just not... No, you were on Bosch, Titus. You were on Bosch. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, but it does feel that way, right? Like these get absorbed so quickly and dispensed or people just miss them. We've moved on and, and I wish. Well, but this is how we also learn to be more laissez faire about spoilers. Like I finally finished Transparent. But it's not about uh, spoilers, it's about ago. conversation. It's about. But like Transparent won the Golden Globe. Like it continued being part of the conversation. But, and it's also, it's part of the conversation because it, you elect to bring that conversation into your life and then eventually engage with it. But part of what I like about the style and it's not exclusive to the shows that are dropped Adam bomb style as you say onto Netflix it's true for the shows that they acquire as well is that they're always there um, especially for the shows that they make because they they are not losing the rights to those shows at any point um, and you can if uh, they haven't been spoiled for you or whatever but you could you know even if Bosch has been on for a year and you hear this and you're like well that Bosch that sounds like a great show you can go on Amazon Prime and it's waiting for you uh, and you know that and so it's true. I think the urgency, it, it, I understand that pull, and uh, I was happy to play along with the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt love this weekend, but it will still be up next weekend. Well, the nice thing, I mean, the thing with Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is that, yes, it'll, it'll always be there, and it's not the type of show that maybe you would go episode by episode and, and want to talk about. So you just want to digest it all in one big swoop because it feels like such a rush of comedy. Also, I, I should say that perhaps you love this show more than others because it just has higher production value. Jesus, it looks amazing. It looks great. It, I mean, it's clearly been shot for a network as opposed to all the shitty cinematography on other Netflix shows. I mean, although which is I so did offensive. watch, uh, I did watch Marco the Marco Polo show. What was it called? This was called yeah, that was a co It's called Marco Polo. They spent like a billion dollars on that show. Yeah, well, it was. I was uh, stars spent that money, and then Netflix acquired the show. Right. They, it's uh, also a co-production, I think, with China. Maybe not like specifically, but like it's got a big international probably. bench, so that they show have the money for it. Fucking amazing! They're all in on it's, China too, because Marco Polo and Crouching Tiger. There you go. It's garbage, oh, yeah. but it looks amazing. That's all that matters. Um, but, well, it, cert- it certainly helps if they're when they're going towards legitimacy. I mean, I was even understanding the history of that show in the the 
broadest terms, I was still blown away watching on Netflix and thinking that this wasn't premiering on HBO or something like that first. It's it's not that, uh, back to my other point, was that we can digest Kimmy Schmidt all in one swoop and maybe come back to it because sitcom watching lends itself to just repeat viewings, especially something as dense as Kimmy Schmidt. But I'm thinking about like Bloodline and or Daredevil coming up. It's the kind of thing where... There's going to be good parts, and there's going to be bad parts, and there are going to be big stories, and there are going to be small moments, and you want to be able to talk about each of them. You know, I, I hear TV critics all the time say they wish they could just review a full season of television and not do the recap culture, um, which I, I guess I, I understand that. But the way – I mean, there's so much art packed into one episode. You want the time to kind of pee, you know pull it apart and talk to people about it and admire it. Um, Netflix doesn't really lend itself. It's quite dizzying for me. But I, I think it's the exact opposite because what they're saying with their own content is it's basically like downloading it onto a DVR that you have to just pay a minor subscription for. Like you'll always have it if you don't. If you're not interested in Daredevil now, if you're maybe interested in Daredevil in five years, Netflix will be around and you well, can watch guess, Daredevil. My guess is that's how they count on most people to consume it. Not being insane Twitter users like us who want everything to be out there all at once. Well, yeah, and it's just sort of amazing that they're just sort of relying on that. Like they have a big ad campaign and a big push because they know some. They know someone's going to binge it, but then the rest of the time it's just out there. And then every once in a while, when it thinks that you might be in the mood because of stuff you're watching, it'll pop up and maybe you'll click on it. I definitely have to watch Kimmy Schmidt a second time. There are too many oh. jokes. It is too crazy. I, I can't absorb it all. It's just so funny. So funny. Jane Krakowski's ongoing joke with bottled water is the highlight <laughs> of my year so far. Yeah. It's, uh, there's, oh, yeah, there's so many payoffs. And I wrote a thing today about how it pays off a 30 Rock joke kind of unintentionally. Because it fulfills everything on Kenneth's list of no-no words. Ooh, the expanded universe. The, the expanded favors. Kimmy Schmidt universe. This is fuck oh, it. No. Fuck you, Dan Aykroyd. And, this is the universe uh, I care about. And as our listeners should really care about, there is a joke at the expense of Kevin Smith that comes uh, at a very unexpected moment, as so many of the best jokes in the show do. So that should be reason enough for you to watch. Yeah, go watch it. Uh, stop listening to this podcast. We all the good. Not forever. Right. Just, just just for now. Just anybody, to watch the show, and then you yeah, can come back. And then come back. Uh, anybody want to sing before we before we end? Um, breakable, breakable. Damn it! It's a miracle. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday reviewing Cinderella, which tragically is no songs. Kimmy Schmidt took all of the songs from Cinderella. That's how it that works. Right? It has like a little lullaby tune. All right, sure. Um, in the meantime, <laughs> tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches. I'm the senior writer at Esquire.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And uh, we have a website. It's called FightingInTheWorm.com. We post all the episodes, and you can comment, you can share, you can um, leave your favorite joke from the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and we'll read it and process it. That's FightingInTheWorm.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the associate film editor of Time Out New York, and uh, the editor at large of Little White Lies magazine. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at uh, Time Out US Film at Criterion Corner. And you can find all of us together uh, talking about happy, fun things on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room. 
I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell that first part DA7E, which is my Twitter handle. I write at Forbes.com, weekly, or dailygeek.com, weekly at latino-review.com, and podcast here at fightingInTheWarRoom.com, where I also do a podcast called The Thought Bubble. It's about comic news. Uh, Marvel's not coming to Comic-Con. We'll probably talk about that. But we're also continually building on the secret wars. If you want to know what any of that meant, tune in to the Thought Bubble in this feed. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com, still not knowing what secret wars are, or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. You can also find all of us on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, which is where you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Run All Night, what's your favorite running scene? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. What?